Chapter Twenty Six of the Blythedale Romance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter Twenty Six. Zenobia and Coverdale. Zenobia had entirely forgotten me. She fancied herself alone with her great grief. And had it been only a common pity that I felt for her, the pity that her proud nature would have repelled as the one worst wrong which the world yet held in reserve, the sacredness and awfulness of the crisis might have impelled me to steal away silently so that not a dry leaf should rustle under my feet. I would have left her there to struggle in that solitude with only the eye of God upon her. But so it happened I never once dreamed of questioning my right to be there now, as I had questioned it just before, when I came so suddenly upon Hollingsworth and herself, in the passion of their recent debate. It suits me not to explain what was the analogy that I saw or imagined between Zenobia's situation and mine, nor, I believe, will the reader detect this one secret, hidden beneath many a revelation which perhaps concerned me less. In simple truth, however, as Zenobia leaned her forehead against the rock, shaken with that tearless agony, it seemed to me that the self-same pang, with hardly mitigated torment, leaped thrilling from her heart-strings to my own. Was it wrong, therefore, if I felt myself consecrated to the priesthood by sympathy like this, and called upon to minister to this woman's affliction, so far as mortal could? But, indeed, what could mortal do for her? Nothing. The attempt would be a mockery and an anguish. Time, it is true, would steal away her grief, and bury it and the best of her heart in the same grave. But destiny itself, methought, in its kindliest mood, could do no better for Zenobia in the way of quick relief than to cause the impending rock to impend a little farther and fall upon her head. So I leaned against a tree and listened to her sobs in unbroken silence. She was half prostrate, half kneeling, with her forehead still pressed against the rock. Her sobs were the only sound. She did not groan nor give any other utterance to her distress. It was all involuntary. At length she sat up, put back her hair, and stared about her with a bewildered aspect, as if not distinctly recollecting the scene through which she had passed, nor cognizant of the situation in which it left her. Her face and brow were almost purple with the rush of blood. They whitened, however, by and by, and for some time retained this death-like hue. She put her hand to her forehead, with a gesture that made me forcibly conscious of an intense and living pain there. Her glance, wandering wildly to and fro, passed over me several times without appearing to inform her of my presence. But finally a look of recognition gleamed from her eyes into mine. "'Is it you, Miles Coverdale?' said she, smiling. "'Ah, I perceive what you are about. "'You are turning this whole affair into a ballad. "'Pray let me hear as many stanzas as you happen to have ready.' "'Oh, hush, Zenobia,' I answered. "'Heaven knows what an ache is in my soul.' "'It is genuine tragedy, is it not?' rejoined Zenobia, with a sharp, light laugh. "'And you are willing to allow, perhaps, that I have had hard measure?' 
but it is a woman's doom, and I have deserved it like a woman. So let there be no pity, as on my part there shall be no complaint. It is all right now, or will shortly be so. But, Mr. Coverdale, by all means write this ballad, and put your soul's ache into it, and turn your sympathy to good account as other poets do, and as poets must, unless they choose to give us glittering icicles instead of lines of fire. As for the moral, it shall be distilled into the final stanza, in a drop of bitter honey. What shall it be, Zenobia? I inquired, endeavoring to fall in with her mood. Oh, a very old one will serve the purpose, she replied. There are no new truths, much as we have prided ourselves on finding some. A moral? Why this? that in the battlefield of life the downright stroke that would fall only on a man's steel headpiece is sure to light on a woman's heart over which she wears no breastplate, and whose wisdom it is therefore to keep out of the conflict. Or this, that the whole universe, her own sex and yours, and providence or destiny to boot, make common cause against the woman who swerves one hair's breadth out of the beaten track, Yes, and add, for I may as well own it now, that with that one hair's breadth she goes all astray, and never sees the world in its true aspect afterwards. This last is too stern a moral, I observed. Cannot we soften it a little? Do it if you like at your own peril, not on my responsibility, she answered. Then, with a sudden change of subject, she went on, after all, he has flung away what would have served him better than the poor pale flower he kept. What can Priscilla do for him? Put passionate warmth into his heart when it shall be chilled with frozen hopes? Strengthen his hands when they are weary with much doing and no performance? No, but only tend towards him with a blind instinctive love, and hang her little puny weakness for a clog upon his arm." She cannot even give him such sympathy as is worth the name, for will he never in many an hour of darkness need that proud intellectual sympathy which he might have had from me, the sympathy that would flash light along his course and guide as well as cheer him? Poor Hollingsworth! Where will he find it now? Hollingsworth has a heart of ice, said I bitterly. He is a wretch. "'Do him no wrong,' interrupted Zenobia, turning haughtily upon me. "'Presume not to estimate a man like Hollingsworth. "'It was my fault all along, and none of his. "'I see it now. "'He never sought me. "'Why should he seek me? "'What had I to offer him? "'A miserable, bruised, and battered heart, "'spoilt long before he met me. "'A life, too, hopelessly entangled with a villain's. "'He did well to cast me off. "'God be praised he did it. And yet, had he trusted me, and borne with me a little longer, I would have saved him all this trouble. She was silent for a time, and stood with her eyes fixed on the ground. Again raising them, her look was more mild and calm. Miles Coverdale, said she. Well, Zenobia, I responded, can I do you any service? Very little, she replied, but it is my purpose, as you may well imagine, to remove from Blythedale, and most likely I may not see Hollingsworth again. A woman in my position, you understand, feels scarcely at her ease among former friends. New faces, unaccustomed looks, those only can she tolerate. 
She would pine among familiar scenes. She would be apt to blush, too, under the eyes that knew her secret. Her heart might throb uncomfortably. She would mortify herself, I suppose, with foolish notions of having sacrificed the honor of her sex at the foot of proud, contumacious man. Poor womanhood, with its rights and wrongs. Here will be new matter for my course of lectures at the idea of which you smiled, Mr. Coverdale, a month or two ago. But as you have really a heart and sympathies as far as they go, and as I shall depart without seeing Hollingsworth, I must entreat you to be a messenger between him and me. Willingly, said I, wondering at the strange way in which her mind seemed to vibrate from the deepest earnest to mere levity. What is the message? True, what is it? exclaimed Zenobia. After all, I hardly know. On better consideration I have no message. Tell him, tell him something pretty and pathetic that will come nicely and sweetly into your ballad. Anything you please, so it be tender and submissive enough. Tell him he has murdered me. Tell him that I'll haunt him. She spoke these words with the wildest energy. And give him, no, give Priscilla this. Thus saying, she took the jeweled flower out of her hair, and it struck me as the act of a queen when worsted in combat, discrowning herself, as if she found a sort of relief in abasing all her pride. Bid her wear this for Zenobia's sake, she continued. She is a pretty little creature, and will make as soft and gentle a wife as the veriest bluebeard could desire. Pity that she must fade so soon. These delicate and puny maidens always do. Ten years hence let Hollingsworth look at my face and Priscilla's, and then choose betwixt them. Or, if he pleases, let him do it now. How magnificently Zenobia looked as she said this! The effect of her beauty was even heightened by the over-consciousness and self-recognition of it, into which I suppose Hollingsworth's scorn had driven her. She understood the look of admiration in my face, and Zenobia to the last it gave her pleasure. "'It is an endless pity,' said she, "'that I had not bethought myself of winning your heart, Mr. Coverdale, instead of Hollingsworth's. I think I should have succeeded, and many women would have deemed you the worthier conquest of the two. You are certainly much the handsomest man.' but there is a fate in these things, and beauty in a man has been of little account with me since my earliest girlhood, when for once it turned my head. Now farewell. Zenobia, whither are you going? I asked. No matter where, said she, but I am weary of this place, and sick to death of playing at philanthropy and progress. Of all varieties of mock life, we have surely blundered into the very emptiest mockery in our effort to establish the one true system. I have done with it, and Blythedale must find another woman to superintend the laundry, and you, Mr. Coverdale, another nurse to make your gruel the next time you fall ill. It was indeed a foolish dream, yet it gave us some pleasant summer days and bright hopes while they lasted. It can do no more, nor will it avail us to shed tears over a broken bubble. Here is my hand. Adieu. She gave me her hand with the same free, whole-souled gesture as on the first afternoon of our acquaintance, 
and being greatly moved, I bethought me of no better method of expressing my deep sympathy than to carry it to my lips. In so doing I perceived that this white hand, so hospitably warm when I first touched it five months since, was now cold as a veritable piece of snow. How very cold! I exclaimed, holding it between both my own with the vain idea of warming it. What can be the reason? It is really death-like. "'The extremities die first, they say,' answered Zenobia, laughing. "'And so you kiss this poor, despised, rejected hand. "'Well, my dear friend, I thank you. "'You have reserved your homage for the fallen. "'Lip of man will never touch my hand again. "'I intend to become a Catholic for the sake of going into a nunnery. "'When you next hear of Zenobia, her face will be behind the black veil, "'so look your last at it now.' for all is over. Once more, farewell. She withdrew her hand, yet left a lingering pressure which I felt long afterwards. So intimately connected as I had been with perhaps the only man in whom she was ever truly interested, Zenobia looked on me as the representative of all the past, and was conscious that in bidding me adieu she likewise took final leave of Hollingsworth and of this whole epoch of her life. Never did her beauty shine out more lustrously than in the last glimpse that I had of her. She departed, and was soon hidden among the trees. But whether it was the strong impression of the foregoing scene, or whatever else the cause, I was affected with a fantasy that Zenobia had not actually gone, but was still hovering about the spot and haunting it. I seemed to feel her eyes upon me, it was as if the vivid colouring of her character had left a brilliant stain upon the air by degrees however the impression grew less distinct i flung myself upon the fallen leaves at the base of elliot's pulpit the sunshine withdrew up the tree trunks and flickered on the topmost boughs grey twilight made the wood obscure the stars brightened out the pendant boughs became wet with chill autumnal dews. But I was listless, worn out with emotion on my own behalf and sympathy for others, and had no heart to leave my comfortless lair beneath the rock. I must have fallen asleep and had a dream, all the circumstances of which utterly vanished at the moment when they converged to some tragical catastrophe, and thus grew too powerful for the thin sphere of slumber that enveloped them. Starting from the ground, I found the risen moon shining upon the rugged face of the rock, and myself all in a tremble. End of chapter 26